I am Crawford Wiley, an organist in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And I'm Sarah Bariza, a researcher and church musician currently living in Cincinnati, Ohio. Today we're talking with Dr. Martin V. Clark about his new book, British Methodist Hymnody, Theology, Heritage, and Experience. And I'm excited to talk about this because, wow, it was so much fun reading a book about Methodist hymnody, which I love. And I'm so excited to hear this because, gosh, I love Methodist hymnody. I think the interesting thing here, Crawford, is that you have actually worked as a staff person in Methodist churches, whereas I, I think you, you've, you've actually worked in two Methodist two churches, Two Methodist right? churches, yeah, yeah, two. And I've never been the staff person at a Methodist church. I've subbed at a lot of Methodist churches. I learned to play piano from a Methodist pianist. And at one point, I was the long-term substitute at a church because the organist fell and broke her wrist. Um, she fell oh, off no. of a ladder. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that was that was... I mean, that's a long time ago now. I was back in high school. But I've never actually worked in a Methodist church. Um, I, I'm trying to think of the, the biggest Methodist experience that I had was probably as a graduate student at Duke University, uh, which is a Methodist institution. So when I was employed as the accompanist for the Duke Vespers Ensemble, I would sometimes play for their weekly Vesper services, which were kind of like a Methodist take on Anglican Evensong. Right, right. One of the most beautiful things about the Methodist hymn tradition is how widely accepted Methodist hymnody mm-hmm. has become, and specifically yeah. Wesleyan hymnody mm-hmm. in almost every denominational oh, circle. Yeah. I mean, you find Wesleyan hymns in Catholic hymnals and Baptist hymnals. I mean, we grew up singing them in Baptist churches, so. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's actually one thing that Martin covers in his book, which is just how incredibly popular Methodist hymnody has been in an ecumenical way. It's, it's, I don't know if he makes the claim that it is the most popular, but it is certainly among the most popular hymnody across denominations. Oh, easily. And it's even become part of other denominations' own identities. I remember we, we were talking this morning and you were saying, oh, Episcopalians have such great hymns. And then you just have to think for a minute and you think, well, actually, what I'm thinking of are the Wesleyan mm-hmm. hymns yeah. that, you know, the Anglicans mm-hmm. yeah. sing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So one of the big points of Martin's book is that hymns are a way of getting a Wesleyan message across, but they're also a devotional practice. So it's a teaching thing and also a personally expressive thing. And the big area that Martin looks at is the huge range of Methodist hymnals in Britain since the 1740s. And I'm, I actually have his book here, and I'm like looking at all the hymnals that he's looked at. And in the Wesleyan era, there's the first collection, which is actually published in Georgia um, in 1737, a collection of psalms and hymns. Mm-hmm. Shortly thereafter, there are editions produced in England in the early 1740s, but these are without tunes. And then in the 40s, there's a collection of tunes set to music as they're commonly sung at the foundry from 1742. And then a bunch of additions after that. But Martin surveys a lot of hymnals after that, all the way up to the present time. So in the 1900s, he's looking at Bible Christians, Primitive Methodist Hymnals, the Methodist Hymn Book, which is published by a committee of various Methodists. And then in the 20th century, he looks at several authorized hymnals, the Methodist Hymn Book from 1933, Hymns and Songs from 1969, Hymns and Psalms from 1983, another edition of it, and then Singing the Faith from 2011, which is a supplement to hymns and psalms. So it's a really broad range of hymnals that Martin is working with. 
So a lot of what we're talking about today is early Methodism, so early 1700s, and how it relates to what's happening in British Methodism today. And we have four big areas that we're going to talk about. First, we're talking about hymns and theology. Second, we're talking about changing hymn lyrics. And you might actually remember Crawford and I spoke about changing hymn lyrics the other day. So this is kind of a continuation of the topic. It's a really contentious thing to do. But I was surprised to find out that John Wesley was changing his brother's hymn lyrics from the get-go. And I do mean like pulling stanzas from different poems, mixing them together. So that's the second area. The third area is using popular musical styles for Christian music, which today could mean... Uh, worship music, but there's also the so-called fashionable music of the Wesley's time, and that was used to set Charles Wesley's own lyrics. And then finally, since we're talking about worship music, we'll also take a quick look at what we see in Methodist services and how praise bands have altered the landscape. First up, let's talk about hymns and theology. Methodists have an Arminian perspective on salvation, and throughout this book, Martin contrasts Arminian hymnody with Calvinistic hymnody. Most notably today, that would be some of the hymns of writers like Keith and Kristen Getty and Stuart Townend. John Wesley's essay, Thoughts on the Power of Music, sheds light on how Methodists have approached hymnody that doesn't line up with their perspectives, both in the past and today. One quick thing, there's a bit of a hum in some of today's audio from the interview. It's a really interesting piece of writing. Wesley was a prolific writer across a whole variety of subjects that that interested him. But relatively little about music, but this essay was his main foray into music criticism or exploration of musical aesthetics. And he was very concerned about the ways in which music affected emotions in the listener or the participant and he saw that music had a particular potential to do that and therefore it was something that deserved serious attention by those who had responsibility for it so that they could use it in ways that would affect the emotions appropriately and he talks about the relationship between words and music in this so in some of his other writings such as the directions for singing there are these wonderful pithy statements that have become very popular But he ends those with having attention to what you sing, so that you're not carried away kind of with the emotion, but you're paying attention to the sense. And there's that important relationship that works between what you sing and how you sing. Um, That that singing isn't this end in itself, but that the content is is important. Now, that was his kind of premise as as a leader, as somebody trying to shape and influence the direction of, of the Methodist movement. Part of that, I think, arises from the experience on the ground, where people will have been caught up in the emotion of singing, and Wesley may be sometimes singing things that didn't accord with what he wanted to get across as his theological point of view, uh, the Arminian point of view that all may be saved in opposition to the Calvinist ideas around predestination, which were very much opposed by Wesley. So, to, to come back to um, more recent context, the hymns of, of Getty, the Gettys, and others like Stuart Townend have, have gained really some popularity within contemporary British Methodism. Some of those don't express an overtly Calvinist uh, position, but others do. Some that, that don't have been included in what Methodism refers to as its authorised hymnal, so those can be regarded as being consistent with Methodist theology and doctrine. But the important thing is that those hymnals have never been regarded as the complete limit of what Methodist congregations could sing. 
perfectly possible for a leader of worship to ask for hymns from outside the authorised hymnal, but the technical understanding is that those, while they may be used, they cannot be taken as necessarily representative of Methodist doctrine or Methodist theology. So popular hymns by some of those writers have certainly entered into quite wide circulation within Methodism, even though they're not in authorised hymn books. And I think that's testament to both those authors and composers' skills as, as wordsmiths, so it's a very powerful text that, that grab the imagination, but also as, as composers of memorable and very singable melodies. And that's clearly something that's spoken to people and, and enabled them to take ownership of these hymns and songs. A lot of hymnody doesn't line up exactly with a particular church or denomination's beliefs. That leads to people changing hymn lyrics, which we'll talk about in our next segment, but it also means that churches use hymnals as a gatekeeper. They have authorized hymns that are in these authorized hymnals, and then music that's outside the fold. And that doesn't mean the music outside the hymnal is necessarily bad or unapproved, but it's not formally approved. This distinction between authorized and unauthorized hymnody is really relevant today when you have digital access to songs and don't have to wait 40 years to get a new hymnal. That raises some contentions for for contemporary Methodism and and about the whole idea of authorised hymnody. And I think part of that is related to the ways in which hymns are mediated in 21st century context. It's much easier for leaders of worship now to go on a much, much broader array of hymns through uh, access to online subscription resources in addition to printed hymnals, and the authorised hymnal remains a print publication. So I think there's a tension there um, about the updating of what is or isn't authorised that is really an issue that Methodism is grappling with, and one that there's no easy resolution to, and I think that points to some tensions between centralisation and local preference, and the degree to which what one sings rather who has control over what sung in a local context. Methodist hymnody has always had a very strong ecumenical element to it from the earliest days, as well as Charles Wesley's own writings. Wesley drew on repertoire both textually and musically from other traditions, especially from metrical psalmody in the Anglican tradition, but also hymns from the pietist traditions in Germany and Central Europe to enrich the hymnals of, of early Methodism. So receptiveness to musical developments outside of Methodism is very much part of, of Methodism's, own, Methodism's own heritage, and that's something that successive authorised hymnals have attempted to address. Each one responds to recent developments and recent kind of trends and um, the popularity of, of hymns since the last, but the tension, I think, remains between print and digital dissemination and, and how that's done. Authorization is something that is very much conceived of with a print context in mind. The stuff that's inside the hymnal is tested for its agreement with Methodist doctrine. Hymns outside that may simply not have been subjected to that process of authorization. They may be entirely expressive of Methodism's beliefs. There's a recognition that one can never have within a single hymnal everything that is representative of the doctrine and theology of the denomination. Martin and I also talked about digital hymnal expansions as a way of keeping up with new hymnody and making sure it aligns with the church's beliefs. So the most recent authorized book was published in 2011. So it's a few years old now, and a number of Methodist churches around the country have 
adopted it as their main hymnal. There's a companion website to it. The book's called Singing the Faith, and the, the, the website is called Singing the Faith Plus. And that publishes a selection of new tech. It's open to submissions, so people send things in. And there's a small editorial team who look over things. And then, if they feel it's appropriate, they will put them up on the website. That is, I think, technically a lesser degree of authorization than the published book. The level of scrutiny is, is not as um, rigorous. But yes, there is some attempt to acknowledge that the body of hymns that Methodists may draw on is ever increasing. Now that we've talked about hymns and theology, we're going to get into changing hymn lyrics. Crawford and I talked about this in episode 13, and wow, some people had really strong reactions to the idea of changing lyrics. I think a common misconception is that changing lyrics has only been happening in the last couple decades, but it's actually not recent at all. There's sometimes a tendency to look at this as a very recent phenomenon, beginning maybe in the last quarter of the 20th century with motivations to do with equality, gender, and that, that is certainly a significant part of what goes on in terms of hymn revision. But there's a much, much longer history of this. It goes right back to, uh, in Methodism, at least, to John Wesley himself. Wesley was a very prolific editor and a very fine, detailed kind of approach with what he tended to do. He, he saw no problem with, with altering his brother's work or, or that of, of writers of previous generations either. From a, an existing text, he would pull verses out or reorder them or combine different stanzas. So the, the, the version published would, would sometimes look quite different, and he would do this with his own brother's work. And some of the things that he was concerned about, especially in Charles's writing, particularly in the earlier part of his career, was often to do with the imagery of blood, which... John Wesley seemed to find sometimes a little overbearing in some of Charles's hymns, particularly those on Eucharistic themes. And this was very characteristic as well of hymnody from the Moravians that Methodists in the 18th century drew on. And John seemed to have some reservations about this, and certainly left out some verses from some of Charles's Eucharistic hymns that, that were very rich and vibrant and detailed in, in the imagery of, of Christ's blood being shed. He also, as I expect was at pain to edit out anything that he saw as representative of Calvinist doctrine and to rewrite it in a way that accorded with his Arminian principles. More recently, though, I think the two things that have driven concerns about textual editing have been to do with modernization, but also, as I referred to earlier, um, representation and issues of equality. Those are, as, as you say, often contentious particularly in relation to the previous hymnal or the hymnal that someone grew up with. And this, I think, plays into questions about the role of hymns in music in memory and how that contributes to someone's spiritual identity to be confronted with a hymn that has had a long personal history and, and acquired a great deal of, of meaning and to find it in a form that different, maybe subtly different or maybe radically different, can be quite disconcerting. Yet, on the other hand, there are those who feel that they have been shut out from some of Methodism and other historic hymnody because of the, the language that is used. Or, again, that contemporary congregations feel alienated by uh, antiquated language that's no longer in common use, so some of the vocabulary may be something that people simply don't know what the words mean. So those are the kind of challenges that hymnal editors are faced with, and each hymn book takes a different approach to it. The most recent two hymn books of British Methodism took quite different approaches. Uh, hymns and Psalms, which was published in the early 1980s, attempted some very 
quiet, if you like, mending um, attack, what, what one of the um, people involved with it called invisible mending. Um, and that was, um, in terms of the original attack, an attempt not to be especially intrusive, the result being that that book maintains, for the very large part, gendered pronouns referring both to humans and to God. The more recent book, Singing the Faith, took a much stronger editorial hand on altering those, those pronouns where they referred to humans, uh, which resulted in some cases quite radical rewriting of, of verses of uh, older hymns. So the texts can appear very different. And there's a tension then between achieving those aims for, for good reasons and, and motivated by genuine desire expressed by people within the church but the level of editorial change required to accommodate them can sometimes have an effect on other aspects of the meaning of the hymn. Whether or not to change hymn lyrics opens up this issue of intention. Like, is it okay to change lyrics to make them express the author's intention in modern English? Or should you never change lyrics if that changes what the author intended? So there is something important about intention there, and you're absolutely right that when um, Charles Wesley wrote All Mankind, that was intended as an inclusive statement, that the way in which language is viewed has changed that, and to refer to that now, for a hymn writer writing today, that would not be regarded in the same way. And the question of what one does with historical text is, is really very tricky, because it's not always possible to do it in a way that easily allows the rhyme scheme or the, the, the way in which a text scans to be preserved. So I think it would be fair to say that the approach taken in Singing the Faith has divided opinion. There are those who have, have valued the approach taken and the, the, the firm attitude towards statement of, of inclusivity, but there are those who argue, on the other hand, that the language was never intended to be exclusive and that by removing or changing familiar language, their experience of the hymn has been diminished in some way. So it's, it's, it's not something that's, that's been an easy thing for, for congregations to handle, I think. Which really comes back to the central point of how deeply many Methodists are attached to the hymns that they sing. You know, there are a lot of different things at play here. That the, the decisions around gendered language are recognised in their own right as deeply important. And Methodism's Arminian theology, with its emphasis on salvation freely offered to all, drives that concern. But on the other hand, there's also a recognition that hymns and the experience of hymn singing can be a significant part of deepening someone's spiritual devotion. And therefore, the aesthetic experience of singing or hearing is important too. And that therefore, the experience that can be affected when somebody finds themselves automatically singing something that is no longer what those singing with more careful attention to the words are singing that. So there's a sense in which gain has come in some ways with loss in other ways. Part 3. Popular Music Styles and Whether or Not They Should Be Used in Church Services One of the prevailing arguments against worship music is that it's based in popular music styles. But this is a perennial question. Tradition? Innovation? Both? This is, I think, a key to understanding why music has been so important in Methodism, but also why it's been such a contested area. Each generation, really, has attempted to negotiate what music is and isn't suitable for use within worship and devotion. From the earliest days, John Wesley and Charles, as well, were very much involved 
in the contemporary art music world. Uh, they were known to theatre performers and indeed theatre owners and, and musicians who wrote for the theatre who were writing fashionable music of the day. Um, particularly a composer called John Frederick Lamper, who as well as writing some operas that were very popular in 18th century London, wrote a series of musical settings for, for hymn texts by Charles Wesley, and Charles and John were great advocates of his music and included it in their collections of hymns for their 18th century followers to sing. On the other hand, we find more localised publications that draw on a different repertoire, and John Wesley and other diaries make clear that what was going on at local level was rather different. There's always been this tension, and that crops up again at different points through the 19th century, the influence of Sankey Moody, for example, and gospel hymnody comes almost alongside, but in, sometimes in competition with the influence of the growing hymnody in the Church of England through hymns ancient and modern and, and that whole school of, of hymn writing. And then, yes, I think the the tensions that come about in in more recent times between those who who wish to preserve the traditional metrical hymnody and those who uh, want to branch out more into the worship music are part of of the same renegotiation of music for each generation of Methodists and what it is that that speaks to particular situations in particular local and denominational contexts. Since we're talking about worship music, Let's take a look at what we see in Methodist services and how praise bands have altered the landscape. In the late 19th and early 20th century, Methodist buildings usually had fixed furnishings and a pipe organ and a pulpit in visually prominent places. But today, these spaces may be altered to allow room for a band. At first glance, this looks like a big difference from having organist-led music, but Martin thinks the band is actually more like a choir than an organ. Many Methodist chapels would have historically had the organ up behind the pulpit, so the instrument itself would be very visible and piped across the, the front of the building. But that setup inevitably places the organist facing away from the congregation and often hidden behind a curtain. So there's a deliberate focus taken away from the musician and moved to include more contemporary forms of music, the band led has brought with it a, a focus on the visual, and that, I think, is to do with the relationship between the instrument and the musicians and the congregation. Though, I think it's, it's probably not entirely accurate to, to make this a kind of hard and fast distinction between traditional and contemporary. The, the role of the choir uh, in Methodist chapels and churches through the 19th and a lot of the 20th century was similar. Choir stalls were often placed very near to the pulpit, with choristers looking directly out towards the congregation and the role of the choir in leading the music then is significant in a way that is, I guess, similar to the band-led experience. The musicians are visually leading the congregation, whereas the organist, placed either out of sight or facing away from the congregation, that emphasizes that the instrument is is significant. Their role is to assist by accompanying. So it is a a different understanding of, of the relationship, I think, but not one that's without precedent. So we've talked about theology and hymn lyrics, popular music styles, and what we see in a service. In closing, let's listen to Martin talk about whether there is a distinctively Methodist music. I think just in general that all of these things point to how difficult it is to label any particular body of repertoire as distinctively or characteristically Methodist hymnody. Methodist hymnody rather, I think, is 
something that is in a constant state of flux and is something that is constantly being negotiated. This was historically borne out through successive hymnals, but also through the kind of things that you witness in historical documents about what went on at local levels, um, in terms of who chose music, who led and performed it, how much a congregation was involved, and we see that continuing today. A lot of that is sometimes focused on what's perceived of as a divide between traditional and contemporary worship, but I think is more broadly um, indicative of a continued concern that what we sing must be very closely bound up with what we believe and what we do as, as Christian people and as Methodist Christians. So this is what I think it is that gives Hymnody its very prominent place in Methodist identity. It's not a particular body of repertoire necessarily that, that does that. It, it, Hymnody is an experience and Hymnody is a process that I think is, is what underpins it. Thank you so much to Dr. Martin V. Clark for sharing his work with us today. You can read more about his book and get a link to Martin's faculty page and Twitter at this week's show notes, musicandthechurch.com slash 17. You can get in touch by emailing us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leaving a voicemail at 513-580-4282. And if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends. The best way for people who love church music to find this podcast is through word of mouth. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at musicandthechurch.com slash sign up. We'll be back next week.